Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. At Life Over Coffee, we exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. And I have a resource for you. Over the next few moments, I want to talk about parenting and specifically the important role of fathers. I trust through this webinar that you will have wonderful instruction, practical instruction on how to lead your family. And this is a webinar for dads and moms to uh, talk together and have that conversation for transformation as you think about how you lead your family and how the father in the family sets the tone and the pace and gives direction and is a practical illustration of how God the Father leads us. The big idea in this webinar is a child's earliest understanding of God the Father comes from their earthly fathers. The psychological term in early childhood development is mutual exclusivity, where a child assigns one label to describe all items within the category. Now, I'm going to talk about mutual exclusivity right at the front, and then I will practically illustrate this throughout uh, this lesson. Most children initially map their experience with their fathers over how they think about God the Father. The key verse that I'm looking at throughout is Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Wisdom from the great Paul the Apostle. Mutual exclusivity, as I launch into this teaching, it, it is important that we understand this early child development term. And so I want to give you several several illustrations of it. Now, again, I've already defined it. It is where a child will assign one label over every iteration within a category. Let me illustrate. When our child was younger, our oldest child was younger, she loved the TV show Blue's Clues. Blue's Clues is a detective show with a dog named Blue who would leave three paw prints, blue paw prints, throughout uh, the house or wherever Blue was. And if you were to puzzle those three paw prints, it would eventually lead you to the clue and you can solve the mystery. Well, our child learned what a paw print was early. Uh, she was two or three years of age when she first started getting into Blue's clues. And because of this concept of mutual exclusivity, she learned what a paw print was. It is Blue's clues. Now, it was interesting, a little later on, uh, we were in a, uh, getting out at a restaurant one evening, Lucia and I and our oldest child, and she began yelling across the parking lot, Daddy, a clue, a clue. I held her in my arms, and I asked her, I said, Tristan, there are no clues out here. What are you talking about? Well, she pointed to an SUV across the way, and it had a Clemson University paw print on the back of on the bumper uh, of the SUV. Clemson University has a mascot. It is a tiger, and that paw print was orange. It did not matter that it was orange. It did not matter what the color was. She already knew what a paw print was because of mutual exclusivity. She already had a label for a paw print, and Every iteration within that category of paw prints, whether it's blue, orange, red, pink, green, yellow, it did not matter. Every paw print is Blue's Clues. Our son had a similar experience in his early childhood. We planted a church way back then, and of course, as most church plants go, you don't have a, a church building and property, and so you have to rent to find space in order to plant that church. And one of the places that we met most often was in a hotel. We rented a Marriott hotel for many years, and it worked well for us. But our children, not having any kind of church experience, they assumed that every hotel was a church building because they learned a hotel is church. And so that is the label. And so every hotel, therefore, must be a church building. And so we were going down Ocean Boulevard one time. 
at Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and our son was looking around at all the hotels on Ocean Boulevard, and he said from the back seat, Dad, there are a lot of church buildings in this place. And I was thinking to myself, yes, son, this is the most spiritual place in the universe. They just have churches all up and down Ocean Boulevard. Again, one label, that is the master label over all iterations within the category. I was counseling a teenager one time, and as he had a sleepover, he told me with his friend, he was about 12 years of age at that time, they were getting ready to go to bed one evening, and he noticed that his friend's parents went into the same bedroom to spend the night, and he was flummoxed because he had no category for that. He told me that his parents have never slept in the same room, and he assumed that when parents All parents, universally, when they go to bed in the evening, they go to their separate rooms. Again, the early impression that maps over a child's mind, it gives them their understanding of how all things happen within that category, whether it's a blue paw print, a hotel, being a church building, or parents sleeping in separate rooms. By the way, this is important when you have leaders within your church leaders anywhere for that matter, but specifically within the church. When little children, when they look up on stage and they see a worship leader, a guitarist, a drummer, a soloist, a a preacher, or any person that is doing something on stage within a Sunday school class or any other uh, teaching context that you have in that church, The child assumes this is a leader, this is a Christian, this is a spiritual person because they are taught to honor and respect this leader, and this leader loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that's why it's complex to these children when leaders fall into sin or maybe their marriages are not um, uh, emulating Christ and the church. And it confuses children because, again, they already know uh, the category, they have the label and the definition of what it is. And if anything comes along and skews that definition by presenting something that's outside of the label that they have in mind, it messes up, it messes them up. Now, this webinar is about the important role of fathers, but I do not want to uh, dismiss or minimize the important role of mothers. Now, I will not be talking about mothers here, but I do want to just mention it briefly under this idea of mutual exclusivity, because again, whatever that mother is, that's going to imprint upon that young child's mind as what a mother is, and therefore all mothers are like my mother. And again, if these mothers aren't following Christ with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, uh, it will confuse them, and it will uh, cause many problems, and it could be throughout their lives, as I have counseled many adult children who had to rethink what a mom is or what a dad is because the picture that they received from their parents was not in line with what God's Word teaches. And of course, finally, there are fathers, and that is the the what I will be teaching on uh, in this webinar. But here are six illustrations that talk about mutual exclusivity. And the big idea is, is that children cannot think with nuance and contour. They cannot read between the lines. They're very black and white. So if you tell them this is what it is, it is what it is. And they can't make distinction in between colors, between blue and orange. And where that really becomes important is dads, specifically specifically the word father. And so when you tell a child what a father is or who a father is, or as we fathers model the role of fathers in our homes, their children learn what a father is. And then later on in life, as they learn about God the Father, you do not have to give them a definition of God the Father because, again, it is mapped over their minds. Now, it is important as I talk about the important role of fathers. I am going to be speaking specifically of hierarchy, and I'm talking about the man leading the home. But I do want to say this. Every male and female are equal before God. 
there is no conflict between hierarchy or roles and equality. Both of those things are true at the same time. Every man, every woman, every child are equal before God. Nobody is better than anyone else. But we have unique earthly roles, which I am calling a hierarchy. It is a structure that we all fit within and that hierarchy, it will affect how we think about and live out our identities in Christ. We cannot function in this world without hierarchy. There has to be structure. There are uh, civil authorities, and they are civilians. There are teachers and students. There are pastors and congregants. There are fathers and children. There are husbands and there are wives. There are employers and employees. The world functions in hierarchy, and it helps things not to be so chaotic. I mean, we can attest to that by looking how our culture is working their hardest to deconstruct hierarchies and flatten everything out, not realizing that every human is equal before God. We're all made in the image of God. But even though that is true, we cannot function outside of hierarchy. And so I don't want women to think, wives to think, that they are unimportant. But this webinar is exclusively talking about the important role of fathers within that hierarchy of them leading their families. Distorted roles within the hierarchy will affect identity. Specifically here, I'm talking about the identity of the children if we have distorted roles in our family structure. And so let me begin by talking about living in hierarchy. What does it mean? Well, we will go back to the beginning. God the Father created a man from the dust of the ground, as we read in Genesis 2-7. That man's name was Adam, and the Father had a relationship with Adam, and Adam had a relationship with him. This is a unique relationship. The father's relationship with Adam is different from the father's relationship with Eve. Again, they're both equal before God, but their function, their roles are completely different. They were even created differently. And so God created Adam from the dust of the ground. And then in Genesis 2.18, he said that it's not good for a man to be alone. Now, he's not talking about uh, this idea that Adam was lonely and Adam had a need and he felt loneliness. Adam had Adam had no needs whatsoever. There was no sin in his life. It wasn't Adam that said, I need someone. He was very happy with God the Father and the animals and doing the work that God had asked him to do. But because man and woman are made in the image of God, God is a communal God. And so it is important that we live in community. In fact, we cannot image God appropriately or properly unless we are living in community uh, to where we can uh, emulate God the Father in the most practical ways, and you can't do that without another human being. And so it's not good for Adam to be alone, and so God created a woman, and her name is Eve. Adam had a relationship with Eve, and Eve had a relationship with Adam. Now notice that Eve was created differently from Adam. Adam came from the dust of the ground, and Eve came uh, from Adam's rib. There are only two genders, male and female, and they are very much different from each other. Equal before God, but different within the, the roles that they play, specifically within the family. All right, so let's move into the family, and let's talk about role questions. If male and female are different, and if their roles are different, then the things that they want, the things that they desire will be different as well. I'm framing it in this webinar as role questions. A boy has a different set of questions than a girl will have because a boy was created differently than the girl. And so a father in the home, let's say, has a son, and he has a relationship with his son, and the son has a relationship with the father. As this young baby boy grows up into a toddler, into an adolescent, into a young adult, 
this boy will be a learner. He will have questions about life, and he will have questions about who he is and how he fits within God's world. If you think about Adam, the first boy or the first man that was created, God gave him a specific identity. One, he created him as a man, and then number two, he gave Adam something to do. Now, these are two of the most important questions that any boy or any man will ever have. Who am I and what am I supposed to do? And I'll get into those questions in just a moment. But let's say this father has a little girl. He has a daughter, uh, Eve, uh, we could illustrate. And the father has a relationship with her and and she has a relationship with him. Now, she's going to come to him with a completely different set of questions because she is a completely different human being. She is a female. And so with the son, his question will be, who am I? Uh, One of the ways that you can think about this is that if you want to mock a boy, if you want to mock a man, uh, all you have to do is to call him a girl or call him a sissy or call him some effeminate name. When you mock a man or a son that way, it distorts his identity. And what he needs is for a father to come along and say, you are Adam. You are a man. You were created created out of the dust of the ground. And this is what a man is. Every boy needs to know what a man is, and it will give him direction for his life. His second question that he will ask is, what am I to do? What do men do? Well, the father told Adam, this is what you're supposed to do. This is your identity. You are a man, and it is your responsibility to take care of what I have created. Sometimes we make fun of, of men when they come together because the first, second, or third question that uh, we ask each other is, what do you do? Actually, there's a reason for that because this is how men find their identity. Uh, you will find men who really struggle this way when they haven't found their place in life. They haven't found their slot. They haven't figured out what they are supposed to do with their lives because being a man, being a protector, being a provider, this is what we do. We take care of things because we are men. Therefore, a father would come alongside a son and he would affirm this in the child. You are my man. You are my son. And then you affirm as they do uh, different things and you encourage and motivate them. And, And as they continue to slide into whatever their proficiency may be in life, then you affirm that as they grow in that identity, as they make their path forward. This is what a father will do for a son. Well, as you think about this hierarchy and Eve, obviously she would have a completely set different set of questions. Now, one of the ways to think about this as you go back to the prior slide is that it was God the Father created Adam for himself and then Eve for Adam. And so you see that hierarchy there. Perhaps you could think about her questions this way. A wife's job, a girl's job, is to submit to her husband all the days of her life and to follow him. And I'm, I'm talking about biblical submission here, not any kind of hostile, angry, aggravated iteration that you may have experienced experienced or you know about submission at it as it is uh, mocked and judged and, and harshly thought about in our culture. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm modifying submission with biblical submission. And as you do that, it is perfect submission that is ordained by God. It is a lovely place to fall within the hierarchy as you submit to a man as he lovingly leads you and guides you. And by the way, because this is where the wife fits, the girl fits within the hierarchy that makes her question self-evident. If I am to follow you all the days of my life, if I am to submit to you, then I have two very important questions. The first one is, will you love me? Do you love me? A woman would have to be insane to submit to a man that does not love her. And so as this husband or as this man 
gets on his knees and he asks you, will you marry me? Well, the obvious answer is yes, but I think before <laughs> before I said yes, I would say, are you going to love me all the days of my life? You're asking me to hitch my wagon to you for the rest of my life and to follow you? Do you love me? And then question number two, is it safe? Will you protect me? These are the early questions. And it doesn't matter if the uh, girl is two years old or 102 years old. Every girl, every woman has these questions built into her psyche, into her soul. And the primary person that's going to answer these questions in her early life is her father. He is the man to this little girl that sets the stage, that answers her questions. And the idea is that she will feel the love of her father and she will feel safe around him. And then as he hands her off to a man a decade or a couple of decades later, then that man should step in and, and he should continue what his father has done for her all the days of that man's life where he will love her and will protect her. These are the most important role questions for a male and a female. The boy wants to know who he is. He is Adam. He is a man. And then he wants to know what he is to do. This is his identity. The girl wants to know that she is loved and also protected. Now, let's put that in an illustration, and I want to map this out for you over the next few minutes, and I trust that it will be beneficial as you think about these things and then make whatever adjustments that you need to make, assuming that you need to make them in your family. And so let's start here in the bottom left hand of the screen. You see a round circle colored in green, and we will say that is the child. Of course, we know that that is not true because no child comes into the world whole. We all come into the world totally depraved. And as you see on the screen, it's like a, a child with a missing piece. It's like Pac-Man. We're all clunking along as we roll through life because we're not completely whole because we are born in Adam and we are born in sin. And so our objective, as this key verse says in Colossians 1.28, Jesus we proclaim, warning every, everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I believe if you read this in the King James Bible, it, say that it says that we may present everyone complete in Christ. And that's why I have this verse here, because the word complete or mature, they are synonyms. But I like the word complete because it gives me that circle that I had drawn out on uh, this graphic that you saw earlier. Our goal is to be complete in Christ. And so, as you look in the upper right-hand part of the screen, you see God the Father, and that is the objective for every human being, that we are to get to God. It is the only way that we can experience wholeness or completeness or maturity in our lives. It starts with being born again, and then we grow up as newborn babies, and then eventually after death, we are glorified where we, we will experience that wholeness that God provides through the door of salvation. But practically speaking, as we look at this uh, growing up in our families, that there is a process. And so let me draw it out on the screen. And that process includes this coupler. The coupler in the middle of the screen is the child's father. The child's father, uh, he is that mutual exclusivity label that I was talking about earlier. And so a child has to grow up. When the child is born, he can't think about God the Father. He cannot say, what must I do to be saved? He has to mature into that. He has to uh, be discipled and grown into that. And so a father steps into the child's uh, life as a picture, as someone who models God the Father and presents God the Father to this child. So, so the child begins to learn what a father is. And then eventually this father will introduce the child to God the Father and begin to explain the way of salvation and what he must do to be saved. But this intermediary link here, this 
this coupler here of the father is an incredible responsibility for dads to give that early description of what God the Father is. Now, I again, I'm not minimizing the mom in the parenting process. I'm not doing that at all. But again, this is titled The Important Role of Fathers, Not Mothers, and that's why I'm focusing, I'm zeroing in like a laser on the role of the father. But I do want to say again, just as I said earlier, uh, that uh, no person uh, is is higher in rank or privilege than any other individual, that we are all equal before God. And as I want to make the point now in the graphic where we are at this point in the presentation, is that moms have an incredible role, obviously, uh, in the rearing of these children. I mean, especially in, well, they give birth to the child. But more than that, a a mom is there early in a child's life and throughout the child's life, uh, fulfilling that role and and, and being all that a mom can be to that child. I mean, for example, when uh, a mom is breastfeeding the child, she is giving the child the earliest earliest connection to the human family as she breastfeeds and and looks that child in the eyes and makes eye contact and that is part of early child development as well she has a significant role i was reading the book called the cyber effect where the social psychologist was talking about the mom who is breastfeeding while looking on her phone not making that eye contact and and again creating a breakage in the linkage between the child and the human family. But moms are more important than that as well, and so they continue to serve this child. But the father cannot be absent. The father has to be there, Johnny on the spot. He has to be the man uh, in this child's life. And so while each role within the husband-wife dynamic has a a particular and essential role in the child's life. Specifically, the dad will begin stepping in right at the beginning, of course, helping with all the practical things like changing the diapers and getting up uh, in the evening and, and taking care of the children as he can along with the mom. But there is a specific role that I'm talking about here where the dad emulates God the Father. Now, there comes a time in a child's life where these role questions that I was talking about earlier, and I'll put them on the screen here, a boy's primary questions are, who am I and what do I do? And then the girl's primary questions are, am I loved and am I protected? Where there is a window of time in these boys' and girls' lives where this becomes absolutely vital. That window of time is arbitrary, but on this screen here, I'm saying between the ages of 10 to 13 years of age. And the reason for this is because this is when the child goes from child to young adult. As I've told other people often that we did not use the word teenager uh, with our children when they were teenagers. Of course, we called them teenagers and we said that. But primarily, the label that we used for our children was young adults because that is what they are. And, And typically, this time is when you have the sex talk with your children. Uh, My wife had the sex talk with our two girls, and I had the sex talk with our son. And and once uh, you bring them to this point uh, in their maturation, uh, for us, that was the transition time where they have gone from child to young adult. And I told all three of our children that you are now a young adult, and we're going to teach you what it means to be a man or or to be uh, ladies for our two girls. But this is a transitional time. And it's self-evident because their bodies are changing, their voices are changing. And this is one of the most insecure time in a child's life because they are crossing this great divide of childhood to adulthood. And they feel it. They feel it physically. They also feel it in their psyches as well, in their souls. And so they can have a deep insecurity. And the temptation to attach to something is really strong. And that is why the fathers need to step up and make sure that primary attachment is with their dads as the man in their lives to help them to cross that great divide.
Now, of course, if the father does not do that, which can happen, uh, divorce could happen, uh, a, a dad could die, a dad could be passive, a father could be passive in the home, a father could be authoritarian and be mean and just have a diminishing effect uh, where this boy does not he feel like a man, he is ever shrinking day by day, or this girl feels unloved and unsafe because the father has been passive or aggressively harsh and uncaring and unkind toward these children. Now, there are many ways that the father can abdicate his responsibility of emulating God the Father to these children. And when that happens, there will be a temptation on these children to at least psychologically leave the home. They may not physically leave the home at this early age, but they can leave the home in their minds. And they will do that because they will have a confused identity. Their question do not change. This boy will be looking for his identity, and he will want to find his niche in life so that he can do what he believes that he is supposed to be doing as a man. And this girl will be looking for love, and she will be looking for a safe space in which she can inhabit so that their questions can be answered because their father had neglected, for whatever reason, of emulating God the Father to these children. Now, as they leave the home psychologically in a confused identity state, they're going to be looking for a place to land, and the place that they land will always be in their strengths. They will always land within their gift mix, their skills, their talents, the things that they do well. That's where they're going to land every time. They're not going to land in their weaknesses. They're not going to land in those places where they might not succeed. They have to land in those places where there is assured success. Let me give you a few illustrations of these unguarded strengths that uh, these children can land in. As you see on the screen here, I have eight strengths listed. But this is not an exhaustive list. Sports, comedy, like a class clown drawing attention to himself. Work, a work ethic. Gifting, a unique gift, talent, skill, whatever that may be. Intellect, uh, legalism, relations, building relationships, talking a lot. Let me illustrate a few of these to uh, make my point here. And so you have insecure boys and girls uh, who uh, aren't sure uh, who they are as far as a boy, and he's looking for affirmation. And so he will look for that affirmation in something that he could do well, like sports, for example. And let's say that he is coordinated and he has a skill set and he is gifted in a particular sport, maybe football. And so he is going to land in that strength, and that strength will become his identity. Uh, he will feel like a man the more successful he is uh, on the field of play. He will also find his identity in what he, what he does. And so as he grows in his talents and in a sport, now what you'll have here is idolatry. Here is a boy that is getting his uh, questions answered through a self-reliant means. He is relying on himself to satisfy these desires that he has in his soul that his father did not step into and affirm him as. And so he has left the home psychologically and he is operating within his strength. You'll also find that with boys with a strong work ethic. They land in a job, uh, working in a, a restaurant, for example, uh, some, some kind of job that a young man can uh, go into, and he will feel affirmation if he's good at it, and his employer will tell him that, that he is good, and he is doing a, a great job, and he will work all the more. He will work harder because he is 
feeling that his identity is being satisfied through what he is doing, through a self-reliant strength. I asked a gentleman one time who was a a Mensa candidate. His IQ was north of 140, and I asked him, I said, what would you do if you had an aneurysm and and your mind was not able to function as uh, it has always functioned for you? He said that life would cease to exist for him. Now, I can understand that on a suffering level. I can understand that on on a, a physical um, uh, impairment level that you're not having the ability that you used to have. But as I had talked to him over many, many weeks, there was also something else that was true, and that is he was very arrogant, and he was arrogant because he knew that he was the smartest guy in the room. That was his identity. He was a little boy who had now grown up into a man, and and he felt his manliness through his intellect, and of course, his intellect led him uh, into his vocational pursuits. And so his entire identity, his role was wrapped up in his intellect, and his intellect was satisfying his greatest longings. You see, legalism uh, on the board here, uh, legalism is uh, really an environment where all you have to do is uh, tick the boxes. And if you can out-legalize any other person within this religious environment, uh, you can be the man uh, and you can find your identity in your legalistic prowess because you keep the rules. As the Apostle Paul would say that he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees and you can find your identity in legalism. Legalism has this twisted um, this this twisted ideology that uh, really caters to uh, insecure people who are looking for boxes, boundaries, parameters, and boxes to tick. And if they can live within those uh, parameters, they can grow in their identity, and they can be the Pharisee of all Pharisees. And so again, uh, children with confused identities because a father has not affirmed them and has been maturing them toward God the Father, they will go out at this insecure transitional time in their lives, and they will they will get their identity questions satisfied through their strengths. Of course, a girl, for example, um, she could uh, be a very relational person, and so building relationships, drawing people in, uh, that is her strength, and she can feel love through that, and she can feel safety by her ability to build relationally. I was counseling a mom many years ago who uh, came in because her daughter was rebellion, rebelling in every sphere of her life. And I asked the mom uh, if there's any sphere that she's not, and she said, well, she actually doesn't rebel in the classroom. That within an academic setting, that is the only place where this child does not rebel. She is a docile, she is the perfect student, and her teachers would be flummoxed if you told them that this girl was a hellion in every sphere of her life because she's the perfect model student. Well, come to find out that their parenting model is, as the mother told me, that she parents the little girl and dad parents the uh, uh, her brother. And the little girl asked her mom many years ago when she was four or five years of age, she said, Mommy, how come Daddy loves Tommy and doesn't love me? Uh, She began to draw interpretations and conclusions on what was going on. And because Dad was uh, always hanging out with the boy and and teaching the boy and, and so forth and neglecting and being passive toward her and sometimes harsh toward the little girl, she learned early. Uh, that if this house were to catch on fire, I think Tommy would be okay, but I would not. But then her mother told me that when she went into cave five, they found out that uh, this little girl had a high intellect, and she began to receive check marks and smiley faces at 100% at the top of her papers, and she felt something that she had not felt from her dad. She felt loved. She felt accepted. She felt significant. She felt affirmed. 
and she also felt safe. She knew that her teachers loved her because there was a reciprocality going on now. She turns in a paper. She gets 100%. The teachers uh, love her for it, and they affirm her for it and appreciate her for it. And so she's getting her questions answered. They love me, and I feel safe in this environment. She was working within her strengths. And the irony is that every semester she would bring home her report card and everybody in the home would give her a standing ovation, not knowing that they were applauding straight-up hardcore idolatry. Oswald Chambers said that an unguarded strength is a double weakness, and when we use our strengths to satisfy our deepest longings, then our strengths become idols. And these are some of the strengths that you will see in little children as they're seeking to satisfy these longings that they cannot articulate, but these desires that are deep in their hearts. I am a man, and I find my identity in what I do. And for the little girl who is just looking to be loved because this is where she fits within the hierarchy and naturally she wants to be in a safe environment and if she cannot find that in her home specifically led by her father there will be a strong temptation to go outside of her home psychologically with a confused identity landing in her strengths. Well, what will happen as they make this transition over this great divide between the ages of 10 and 13? Eventually, that window will close, as you see on the screen. And if these desires have not been satisfied, what will happen in a few years is that another window will pop open, and that window will look like what you see here, S-E-X. It will always look like sex. And usually that is between the ages of 14 years of age. And let me illustrate very briefly what this means. If you have a boy who wants to be a man and wants to be looked at as a man, then he will do all the things that he needs to do in order to find that affirmation. And one of the ways that a boy will do that is to capture a girl, to get a girl, uh, to be able to be whatever he needs to be for that girl. He will be a man to her, and he will do whatever he needs to do. And if you come alongside an insecure girl who is looking for love, uh, is looking for a place to be safe and protected because she doesn't sense that within her home. She will be easy prey for this boy uh, as he comes along and he begins to perform uh, all the things that in a echo of a kind of way of what her father is not doing. He loves me and I feel safe with him. Now, what you have in this context is you have two people lusting after their idols, lusting after each other, but for them, it appears to be love, and he feels like he is satisfying his manliness by performing, by doing for her, and she feels love, and she feels safe and protected around him, and so that relationship will grow, and of course, you know where it will go because that's where it always goes, and for whatever reason, and there can be varied reasons. They will eventually uh, fornicate. They will have uh, sex. There's an article on our website at lifeovercoffee.com that is titled something like sex before marriage leads to a trail of tears. And I've seen this over and over in a counseling situation where a couple can get 15, 20, 25 years down the road in marriage and the accumulative effect of bad leadership and a bad marriage that at some point the weight of it is so heavy that they come to counseling. And as you begin to unpack as you begin to peel the onion to, to get back to where it all began, I would say that 90, at least 90% of the time that you will find that people with a struggling marriage, 15, 20, 25 years in the future, they fornicated before marriage. They had sex before marriage. Sex before marriage is a leadership issue. Sex is a leadership issue. And this is how he leads. And, of course, she submitted herself to that for whatever reason. And so this is what submission looks to her. And so it's a twisted submission and it's twisted leadership. And you will find that iterating throughout their marriage that there will be poor leadership practices all the way up to the point to where they come to ma come to marriage counseling because the marriage is just falling apart. They have never righted the ship. 
And again, I say that, you know, probably 90% of all uh, marriage problems, it began uh, because they started the wrong way. There were two people, there were two empty love cups with these questions that were running under uh, under the surface of their lives and they they connected with each other and they began to satisfy these longings that they had basically they were using each other and then they fornicate and then they end up getting married and they continue to use each other even in imperceptible ways and so you have to turn that around and and help them to walk out repentance recognizing what they have been doing with this pattern throughout their lives but Typically, in homes where children are not led well by their fathers, whether it's a boy or a girl, this is the pattern that you see. Not absolutely, but the majority of the time that you will see, as you see here on the screen. As you might imagine, that these children inevitably, uh, they get to God if they ever get to God at all. Uh, They get to God the long way around. I would say that most children, and I would be one of those children, uh, do not have this direct route from uh, the bottom left hand of the screen diagonally all the way across to the upper right hand uh, to where they come to God the Father as they're led well by their fathers who are emulating. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.1, as beloved children imitate God, and so this father not imitate imitating God, or as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. And what should happen, there should be a gravitational pull to where these children are experiencing an echo of God the Father through their earthly fathers, and it creates this this gravitational pull to where they want to experience the fullness of what a father is through God the Father. Now, it's important here that you you understand that this is not a formula. Uh, this is not a formula. It's not formulaic, uh, but this is just a conceptual idea of what I have seen a thousand plus times in counseling as I'm talking to adult children. And after a while, when you do this enough, you begin to see these patterns uh, in their lives, these questions that they have that are deep in their souls. And then you see the trajectory of getting to God the Father. And most of them, most of us, I might say, uh, get to God the long way around. And that is the important thing that we need to remember here is that there is grace for this, uh, that you might not have had the ideal uh, childhood and uh, your path may have taken this circuitous route to get to God the Father, but you got to God the Father and your testimony is God's grace is sufficient no matter what has happened to me. As I proceed, I do want to introduce a couple of words for you. You see here on the screen in big, bold letters, and that is legalism. The reason I put this word here is because some dads can look at this, some moms, parents can look at this and say, oh boy, we have, we have messed up. We have not done it as well as we could have. Understand. Uh, neither have I. And I think that every rational parent would say that I have not done it well. Uh, Many of us would like a redo, at least on a few things in our lives. But what we want to guard our hearts from is legalism. Legalism says that what I do matters more than what God can do. What I do is elevated higher than what God does. And so if there's a temptation to look in the rearview mirror and begin to regret uh, maybe some mistakes in the past, you cannot become a legalist. You can't jump into the ditch of legalism and say, I have ruined my children. No, God's grace is greater than all our sin. Many of you who are listening to this, you know part of my testimony that I was in jail when I was 15 years old, that my dad was an alcoholic. He was a very mean man. Uh, He did some very bad things. Uh, But God's grace is sufficient. God regenerated me despite what my parents did. And you need to know that. And so you want to guard your heart from legalism. 
The second big word that I want to put on the screen, you see it here, is the word victim. There will be some adult children that will uh, look at this, watch this webinar, or listen to the podcast, and, and they will say, well, my father did this to me and just ruined my life. There's a warning here, and, and I, I, I need to carefully and lovingly admonish you that God's grace is greater. It's greater for the legalist and it's greater for the victim. You cannot take on a victim mindset. I did that for a long time. Uh, I was a very angry teenager as I reflected on what my dad did uh, to me. Uh, but that will only spin you into a deeper uh, and harder change that chains that it will be more difficult to extricate yourself from. The word victim, in part, as far as the etymology is concerned, is vicarious, is a person who carries sin. Jesus was a victim. We are not built to carry sin for any length of time. We have episodic moments where we are victimized. Uh, bad stuff happens to us. And so, yes, we become a victim. But if that victim is, lingers in our souls to where it's not episodic anymore, but it is a pattern, it is an attitude, we are not built to be victims. That is why we have the vicarious Savior who will take all of our sin, whether it's ours or what other people have done to us. We cast that sin on Christ. And so I had to wrestle with God uh, to take the sin of my dad and to work in my heart to where I had an attitude of forgiveness toward him because I could not be a victim any longer. If you carry the mantle of a victim, it will carry you deep down into some weeds that will be hard to extricate yourself from. And so the two words as you watch this webinar that we can't be ensnared by is legalism for the parent who is reflecting back and recognizing they could have done better. Don't put yourself higher than God to where your uh, mistakes are greater than God's grace. And then for the victim, those of us who have received uh, improper parenting, specifically uh, the imp imp improper fathering, we can't get into a pattern of victimization because that mindset will destroy our souls. And so let that be an admonishment if it applies. I want to wrap up this uh, webinar by asking you a few questions. And the first one is, what are you thinking? What are you thinking? As you listen to this or watch this, uh, what's going through your mind? And I would encourage you to share your thoughts with another person. Tell somebody uh, what's going through your mind as you think through this. Maybe you're struggling with legalism. Maybe you're struggling with victimization. Maybe you have other questions. It would be great for you to get together with someone and, and you all consider how you can spur one another on uh, to loving good deeds and just talk through what you have watched here or what you have listened to. Number two, in what ways was your father like God the Father? And if your father was, I would encourage you to go to him and just thank him for emulating God the Father to you in whatever ways that he did. Encourage your father. Uh, if you're not a father, I, I, I know fathers know this, mothers know this as well. It's not easy being a father or a mother. It's not easy being a parent. And, and if they're hitting the nail on the head, if they're doing a few things right, encourage them and thank them specifically here. Thank your dad for being a good father. And then in what ways was he not emulating the God, God the Father. And I'm not asking this question to grow in bitterness or cynicism or criticism. This is not to create a, a tick sheet of all the ways that maybe your dad failed. But you need to think about it because you need to make a distinction between what an improper father is and what God the Father is like, uh, because there can be uh, some deprogramming that needs to happen to children because of mutual exclusivity, and they have mapped their experience of, of their earthly fathers over God the Father. And so without being punitive or unkind, just being rational, just thinking objectively in what ways was your father not 
And then uh, probably a natural follow-up to that, what are the dangers of taking on a victim mindset? As I've outlined here earlier that the word victim means vicarious, God did not build us to carry sin. And that's why we have a Savior, and so we have to learn how to cast our cares, cast our sins uh, on others. There's an article at lifeovercoffee.com that's titled, uh, The Reason I Stopped Hating My Dad. Uh, For some of you, it might be important for you to read that, that article or listen to the podcast, and perhaps it can help you if you're stuck in a victim mindset. Number four, how have you mapped your father experience over God the Father? One of the reasons that I loved legalism uh, early on, and it was not intuitive necessarily, it's not something that I uh, thought about, Uh, it was just a, a hand going into a glove, and it fits so naturally, even though I could not articulate these things. But the reason that I enjoyed a legalistic religious culture in my early experience with God is because it felt safe. All I needed to do was to learn the rules of religion, of my uh, fundamentalist, um, legalistic environment. Uh, Just learn the rules, and I was a quick study. And so I I realized that uh, they all carried King James Bibles. They all uh, wore suits. They all showed up three times a week, and they sang in the choir, and they they participated in these other ministries, and they had ascetic practices where they touch not, taste not, handle not. And then I learned all of these things, and I felt safe. I felt safe with God. I felt safe with that environment because legalism gave me a very tight rail to run on because I knew what it was like to displease my father, and I knew that I was going to be beat, and I had, in an unwitting way, mapped that experience, because it was not something that I thought about, because it was so ingrained, it was so habituated into my psyche. I mean, you learn over a couple of decades that uh, you just keep your head down, and you follow the rules, and if you follow the rules, you'll be fine, and so you do that. It's like kinesthetic memory, muscle memory, where you you don't even have to think about it anymore. It's just a rhythm. It's a habituation that you have, and so legalism made sense to me, and even though I knew, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of works, there was still this impulsive instinct within me to make sure that I did all things well because the other shoe was going to drop and I had mapped my experience of my father over God the Father. Question number five, in what specific ways do you need to change? And I'll go back to what I asked you under the first question. Would you share your thoughts with another person? This would be a good conversation for transformation. And so as you process this webinar, the important role of fathers, there are many things that uh, perhaps that are coming to your mind. I would encourage you to write those things down. Uh, Perhaps watch the webinar with a friend or listen to it. Watching it is better because you can look at the graphics and and work through it. You can also screenshot the graphics as well and mark them up uh, with a pen, and then you can uh, talk about this with a friend, and it could be a tremendous help to you. Finally, number six, I appeal to you to stay out of the ditches of presumption and regret. Those are the two ditches. I talked about regret with legalism earlier. Uh, The other is presumption, the other ditch on the other side of the road. Presumption is taken for granted, meaning it doesn't matter what I do. And so somewhere in the middle, this middle space is wisdom, practical wisdom of how we are to cooperate with God in parenting our children. We don't take them for granted. I don't have to do anything, and of course, we don't overcare and become a mini-Messiah by thinking that what we do is greater than the grace of God. So what is wisdom? What is that middle space that where you zig and zag down the road, pneumatically walking in the Spirit, practically cooperating with God in the parenting of our children, always staying out of the ditches of presumption and regret? The big idea, a child's earliest understanding of God the Father, comes from their earthly fathers. The psychological term in early child development is mutual exclusivity. 
a child assigning one label to describe all item, items within the category. Most children initially map their experience with their fathers over how they think about God the Father. One more thing before you leave, uh, I would love it if you would pray for our ministry, that you would ask God to continue to give us favor. We have experienced lots of favor from the Lord as he continues to expand our ministry. We want to take the practical message of Christ around the globe. People say over and over again that your ministry is so practical. Well, that is our niche. That is our lane, and we want to stay in it. And so if you would pray that God would continue to uh, help us to expand as he sees fit, but only uh, by going down this lane, by teaching people how to apply the Bible practically to their lives. You can follow us on all the socials, and so if you're on social media, just please follow us and also share our ministry with others. That would be very important. Our resources are almost all free. If you're watching this webinar, I've got so many other resources that are free. Uh, please share them and let other people partake of these free resources. And then, of course, if you can support or donate, well, the truth is, None of this is free. Somebody is paying for it. And so we do ask folks that are able, only those who are able uh, to support us or make a one-time donation, support regularly or donate, uh, to help underwrite this ministry, and it will allow us to continue to produce content. And we do produce a lot of content, and we have a lot of people that are working for us. And so there is a financial burden. But because we give it away, that's a decision that I made a long time ago. I want people to experience it freely while trusting God that he would bring donors and supporters to help us partner with us in this great gospel mission. Some of you may want to become a mastermind student. That is our all online training program, and it is all online. There's a QR code here that you can put your phone over, and it will take you to our LMS, our learning management system, that will tell you all about uh, the, the mastermind uh, program and so you're welcome to uh, take a look at it to learn what it's about, and perhaps this is a season in your life uh, to where you can devote to a, a school, an academic training program uh, for the next couple of years, and if, if this is a good season for you, please check out our Mastermind program uh, to become as skilled of a disciple maker as you possibly can. I am Rick Thomas. This is titled Parenting, the Important Role of Fathers. I appreciate you watching and hope that you will share this content with others. Please talk to them about what you have learned and appeal to them to speak into your life. Uh, if you are a dad or a mom or uh, even a young person, and uh, please uh, let others know what you have watched or saw here, and, and hopefully they will want to do the same. You can find us at lifeovercoffee.com. This is where we have conversations for transformation. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.